Hello, everybody. I'm J.D. Lopez, the host of Left Hand Right Brain. It's a free-flowing, wide-ranging conversation that I have with artists doing interesting and creative things here in Denver and beyond. We talk about their personal stories, break down their creative process, and what motivates them. Spoiler alert, it's mostly spite. We talk about all these things and more while kicking back, cracking wise, and always having a good time. You can find old episodes and everything you need to know at lefthandrightbrainpod.com. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. Start the show! You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 211. Your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, I've got someone who is like a Denver institution. Rather, maybe he works for a Denver institution, and he himself has been an important voice in its development and continued growth and evolution. I'm talking about Michael Roberts. And in this episode, he asks me to call him Mike. I've never seen him listed as Mike, but he introduced himself as Mike. And he said, yeah, you can call me Mike. I go, okay, great. Uh, it still looks weird to me because I have been reading him for so long. He has been a reporter at the Denver Westward for 29 years almost. I think he's just shy of that 29-year mark. So he has seen a ton in his time. And this episode is packed with anecdotes. There's lots of great stuff in here. We talk about how he bricked an interview with Dinosaur Jr., about how he did a great interview with Ben Harper. We talk about this hilarious meeting he had with Billy Idol. We talk about surf guitar legend Dick Dale, who recently died, and the interview he did with him. This episode is just pure fun. And I'd like to give a shout to Mike, because he has the record now for quickest to respond to a pitch by me. That's right. I reached out to him and I said, I said, Mike, my name is John. I host the John of All Trades podcast. I've been doing this for more than 200 episodes, five years, yada, yada, yada. And within, seriously, like less than 10 minutes, he writes back. He goes, yeah, that sounds fun. When do you want to do that? This might be easier via phone. I go, I'll come to you. We got it set up. And I go, why can't every pitch go this way? So what a super dude. Just bringing value to the community through good reporting, a ton of words, and giving you profiles of people that you know, but don't know as well as you think. So, in this episode, we talk about his profile of Kathy Sabin. I will link to that on the companion blog piece because it's exceptional. I also ask him about his profile of Willie B, who has been on KBPI now forever. These are two people who you've seen a lot or maybe heard a lot, yet there is so much depth to this interview, it's remarkable. So, he is great at what he does. I reached out to him. Pure, I didn't know him. I just reached out purely because I'm a fan. And so sat down in his office. He took 45 minutes with me. It was terrific. A couple of notes before we get to this week's show. The first is a note about this show. And I quote John Cusack's character from High Fidelity. And the quote I use was the intro to These Things Matter. And I meant to bring that up when I was talking to Mike. But we moved on too quickly. I forgot. That's a mea culpa. As I was going back through this episode, I go, I got to give a shout out. To Kevin and Taylor, I miss them. I miss their show greatly. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I used their very intro in a point that I was trying to make to Mike. So, Kevin, I hope things are good in New York. Taylor, I hope things are good in Los Angeles. I hope you guys do a reunion show someday. That'd be fun for all of us. Secondly, thanks to everyone who commented or liked or shared 
the five-year anniversary post that I did. Didn't do an episode because it really originates with blogging for me. And I hadn't written anything in a while. I got the Jones to write something. I was trying to come up with some ideas to do audio things like a live show, or I had this other idea that I may still do, so I'm not going to share it here. But I toyed with a bunch of ideas. I'm like, you know what? A simple blog post. I just want this to be kind of a memorial to the five years that this show has existed. So if you have listened to this show from its beginning, or if you are just listening for the first time now, I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in and making me a part of your life. All right, that's it. No plugs, because this is the first one back. This is the first show in our sixth year. How very exciting. And I could not pick a better guest. I've got Michael Roberts, longtime reporter of the Denver Westward. He is episode 211, the first one of year six. And his episode starts right now. The first piece was about David Sirota, who is a local journalist and has been a, a, a radio host in this area. And uh, David just announced yesterday that he uh, had was leaving journalism to take a job with uh, Bernie Sanders as his right. uh, speechwriter. And so I interviewed him yesterday morning at about 11. At about 2, The Atlantic wrote this piece that created a Twitter shitstorm uh, <laughs> about calling him a, a Twitter attack dog, saying that what Sirota did on Twitter attacking Democratic rivals of Bernie Sanders uh, right. was contradictory to Bernie saying that he wanted a, a sort of more civil campaign dealing with Democratic uh, opponents, and also that he, uh, Sirota, had been working in a uh, uh, secret capacity for Bernie for months. Oh, okay. So uh, it, it created this big storm. I sort of communicated with Sirota after that and also heard from Bernie's campaign manager yesterday evening. And so we had to kind of put this all together with the previous interview and then everything yeah. that happened since then. Okay. I f did you – I mean, was there a piece that went up yesterday? Because I feel like I read this. or, or was It went that... up this morning. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I read that on my way over here. Well, there you go. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> and and the second piece well, – uh, I try to do a little bit of journalism here, as you might imagine. <laughs> a little bit of prep as I can. The second piece uh, is about uh, a new report showing that Hispanic displacement due to gentrification in various parts of Denver uh, is at a greater level or more extreme than in any other city in the country. There are okay. five tracts in Denver where over a thousand people on average have been dislo uh, moved out because of gentrification. Right. And so I talked to a couple of local Latino leaders about that and putting that study into context. And it may be going live even as we speak okay. because I stopped by and told the editor it was done on my way up to uh, let you into the uh, office. Here. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, so this is Michael Roberts, longtime reporter for The Westward, and I mean, I've been reading you forever now. You said you started as music editor? Yeah, I started in October 1990 as music editor, oh so my. coming up on 29 years here. Goodness, okay, that's uh, that's a long time to be in one place, especially as a journalist. What do you attribute that longevity to? Uh, I think probably constant paranoia. <laughs> 
<laughs> the certainty that each day I'm walking in, I could be fired. Okay. So that's a, a strong motivating force. Well, you and I share a very similar work myth in that, um, have you ever heard there's like a, there's like a, a funny poster. I mean, and I use funny in quotes, but it's like a, a defecatory overview of world religions. You know, uh, Catholicism, if shit happens, I deserve it. <laughs> Judaism, why does I was, this... I was raised as a Catholic and... Perfect, I'm so you can identify very with Very lapsed, <laughs> but uh, yes, I can identify. So, uh, you know, Judaism, why does this shit keep happening to me? Rastafarianism, let's smoke this shit. <laughs> um, one of the Christian ones is, if I work hard enough, shit won't happen to me. <laughs> and I sort of subscribe to that. And what's amazing to me is the amount of inches and the amount of words that you can bang out because... If I'm clicking on a Westward article, chance I, I would say it's probably a one in three chance I'm clicking on one in one of yours. And, I mean, it's everything from – you mentioned gentrification of Latinos to uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, David Sirota. That's a long piece, by the way. Mm -hmm. I, how many words was that? Oh, I, I didn't look. And if Do you I even bother to time, count? I, I, I seldom bother to check. Uh, I tend to check on long interviews because I feel bad for our copy editor. Oh, sure. I, I, I want to kind of warn her in advance. Uh, a recent interview, a Q&A that I did with Kathy Sabin of Nine News. I love that piece, and I was going to ask you specifically about that. Oh, well, but go you. on. Uh, I, I measured it because I knew it was going to be huge, and it was over 7,000 words. 7,000 words. Yeah. Uh, that's one of those things, too. And I, I wanted to get into that because I interview people professionally, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and you do the same. And what was what's so striking about that Kathy Sabin interview was how deep it went. And it reminded me of one of my other favorites of yours, your interview with Willie B. Oh, seriously? Oh, it's fine. <laughs> uh, you're, I actually <laughs> muted my phone here. Oh, but it came through the Bluetooth? It came through the Bluetooth. Oh, that's too funny. Oops. Here, I got it. Scam likely, too. Oh, scam likely. Perfect. <laughs> One of my favorite callers. I hear from scam likely on a daily basis. <laughs> I do, too. several times. Uh, I had one call me, and they said, uh, there's a problem with your computer. So uh, we can offer the fix, and I go, I will give you $100 right now. Literally, I will wire it to you if you tell me what kind of computer I have. <laughs> uh, they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But um, it reminded me of the other piece that is one of my favorites of yours, the long interview you did with Willie B. Mm -hmm. You take these people, and, and the reason I say this is because I interview a lot of people who aren't used to being interviewed. So I have to do a little bit more of the sort of get to know you, you know, the Larry King kind of thing and larry king famously did no prep but these interviews are so in-depth with people that i would say the public knows pretty well i mean mm -hmm. kathy sabin's been on the air now for how long oh since the early 90s here in denver right. and longer than that uh, in her career absolutely and willie b i i listened to willie b back in high school mm -hmm. when he was part of the uh the locker room on kbpi right and so you have these people that the public knows really well how much prep goes into interviewing folks like this? Oh, a, a lot of prep. That's one of the keys for me is that you may think you know these people. Uh, Willie B., an example, who's on the air for hours a day. Yeah. But uh, you you probably don't or there are things about them that you don't know. 
And if you get them talking about things that they haven't talked about in public for a long time, it can be really uh, insightful and fruitful and give you a new angle on somebody who you think you already know very well. And so that's part of the fun for me is to be able to really dig in and and see sides of people that they may not show regularly. Uh, you mentioned a couple of media people, yeah. uh, but that goes for anybody in any walk of life. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. How do you dig in? Like, what what is sort of your process for digging into someone like Kathy Saban or Willie B or a business leader? You know, wh- what are the types of things that you go to to find things that other people may not know from listening to, say, Willie B all those hours in the morning? You know, you think you know Willie B, mm-hmm. but there was so much in that interview I didn't know, especially about the process and how he leveled up at KBPI. Yeah. Yeah, part of it is simply having been here for a really long time. Uh, I, <laughs> as the music editor, reported uh, on Willie B back in the 90s, and, yeah. and uh, he was somebody who I had talked to early on in terms of KBPI in sort of the 1995-ish area, being very stodgy, not wanting to embrace any new music at all, only wanting to play hair bands that nobody gave a shit about anymore. <laughs> right, like playing Smoking in the Boys Room. Yeah. Like, I remember listening to KBPI, and I, I migrated over. I, this was early on. This was in the early 90s, but like uh, I was more listening to 92X, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. which was a great station. And, and which was a station that KBPI basically blotted off the face of the earth by stealing their format. Yeah. Like, we'll just do exactly what you do so people can't tell the difference, and then you'll go away and die. And it, that's what happened. <laughs> exactly. But, like, on KBPI, you know, I, I didn't want to hear crew. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to hear... I, I don't think they were playing Fog Hat, but, you know... It was it, that kind of thing. Exactly. And, and Willie B was somebody who came in and said... We should be playing Rage Against the Machine, and we look stupid because we're not. <laughs> we're a hard rock station not playing the, one of the most revolutionary hard rock bands out there. Right, and and the th- shocking thing was he told me about it on the record, and I th- thought for sure he was going to get sacked, and yeah. uh, he got some heat about it, but he managed to not only survive but thrive, and just recently uh, with our article from this last year i think it was uh time to his 25th anniversary on yeah. that single station which is really really rare so okay so part of it is a byproduct of just being here for as long as you have mm-hmm. um the other part do you have any sort of techniques because i have some i've shared them on the show for getting people to open up how do you make someone comfortable to talk to you in this long form environment because not everyone is super comfortable with that kind of thing well, I, I do a lot of research, just pretty standard Internet research. And one of the things that I try to do is not ask the same questions that everybody else has asked oh, yeah. and see if there's a different way into getting into those questions, something that hopefully spurs a, a, a tangent or, or something that they may not have thought about. Because we all in our everyday life have stock answers. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, If somebody asks a simple question in a simple way, we'll probably answer it a way we have a hundred times before. Yeah, with boilerplate. 
Yeah, and it's boring when you've got somebody who's a public figure who has not only answered that question that way a bunch of times before, but in print, and people may have read that before. So just trying to come up with a different angle on anything and everything that I possibly can, and just simply having that background and knowledge on somebody makes them more comfortable to open up. Like, oh, you know about this, so I don't have to explain this right. to you. Yeah, I'm not going to be talking to some rote jackass who's coming into this cold. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, uh, so the first interviews I ever did, and I'm sure you can relate to this, were with bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how many bands have you interviewed at this point? Oh, Too uh, many to count, right? Hun- hundreds and hundreds. Uh, I think the first national act I uh, interviewed was when I was going to Northwestern, and I interviewed one of the guys, Power Off, one of the guys from uh, They Might Be Giants. Oh, cool, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was late 80s, and then from there, it's been... Well, I, I I can share some of my uh, my favorite stories with you if you'd like. But, oh, by uh, all means, yeah. Here, here's the interview that I didn't get. Billy Idol was just in town. I desperately wanted to uh, interview Billy Idol because of something that happened when I was working at Tower Records on the Sunset Strip <laughs> in 1984-ish, 85-ish. So Billy was shacked up in a hotel just down the street with hot and cold running groupies going in and out of that. We knew he was in town. Uh, And being a wise ass at that point and and not being cool to say you liked Billy Idol, I told one of my coworkers, oh, that guy sucks. He's not a real punk. Who cares? So I got to ask, were you a punk rocker? Uh, I loved punk rock. I was, you know, more like the uh, the normal dressed guy who quietly went into my home and listened to the Buzzcocks really loud. Oh, totally, like Jason Siegel in SLC Punk. Yeah, like yeah, his, yeah, that totally. kind of thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I wasn't outwardly punk either, but I was punk in my core. I loved <laughs> that, it. That, that. That was me too. That was me too. So uh, when Billy Idol showed up at the store, my coworker brought him over and introduced me to him, saying, "He's your biggest fan," <laughs> and Billy's very. Very happy and and sticks his hand out to shake his hand. And there was something on his hand. I'm not. It was kind of viscous and kind of slick. It was like fluid. It it, it was like thick lube of some kind. Uh, It took me three different hand washings to get it all off. Uh, And uh, so what I wanted to interview Billy Idol about was what was on your hand? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't get the chance. Like so he's going to remember, upset. though, right? Oh, I, I, I just, I'm sure something good would have come out of that conversation. And, and that's a key to interviewing, too, is totally. somebody says something interesting and you have to, I, I sort of have an outline of questions that I use, but I will readily abandon it to be able to come oh, totally. up with, a, you know, an interesting thing that pops up out of nowhere. P- yeah, people always ask me, like, it, do people ask you if they can get the questions in advance? Oh, yeah. That's all, a all the time, one. right? Yeah. Um, and I tell them I have like somewhere between three and six general topic areas I want to make sure we touch on. Mm-hmm. As long as we cover those in some depth, I'll be happy. And then we digress wherever we want. Right. Um, to your point, if I were to interview Billy Idol, I'd want to ask him about playing the Warp Tour in like 2007 
when he went on too long and MXPX just played over him. Uh, that's, <laughs> and, that's a sad statement right there. Well, and I thought, <laughs> that is a super punk move, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, way to go, MXPX. Just, like, be too punk rock for that punk rock guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, he's going over his allotted time. Fuck that. We're going to play anyway. Mm-hmm. I thought, that's fantastic. That's what I'd ask Billy Idol. Yeah. But you're you're absolutely right. Having a unique entry point, because he probably hasn't had that question before. Oh, I don't think so. And the viscous hand thing, you know, Tower Records, 1984, you're going to trigger him to talk about something interesting yeah. that he probably hasn't covered a zillion times. Exactly. It reminds me of interviewing uh, uh, Vinny Fiorello from Less Than Jake. And at some point, we, we started talking about their, their sort of most maligned album called In With The Out Crowd. Mm-hmm. And he ended up telling me all about his divorce and his grandfather dying. And I thought, this is great stuff. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, I found there's there's a real human element to your interviews. How much of that is uh, you being evocative or you offering something of yourself? Because I've found that to be successful for me, where if the person I'm interviewing feels like I'm giving of myself too, they're more inclined to share with me. It's like an invitation. Mm. Does that resonate with you? Uh, you know, I don't know if that's a technique that I use all that much. I think the key for me is is just sort of endless curiosity and yeah. being uh, very uh, attuned, uh, a good listener willing to pivot at any moment. Uh, you know, when John Lydon of uh, the Sex Pistols and, and Pill... And Pill talks about how much he loves watching uh, uh, Matlock, <laughs> that is immediately going to get my attention. Yeah. I'm going to want to ask Matlock questions. <laughs> so uh, y- you have to be willing to throw everything, all your preparations out, or at least set them aside for a while and take advantage of uh, a spontaneous and weird moment. Absolutely. you got to be improvisational. Have you had many interviews, or can you give me an example of an interview that you feel like went splat? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, uh, Jay Maskus of uh, Dinosaur Jr. Mm. Uh, was one of my worst interviews ever. And then 10 years later or so, uh, uh, Dinosaur Jr., reconstituted was playing our westward music showcase and i got an opportunity to interview him again and i thought i'm gonna make good on how bad that other interview was and it was just as terrible <laughs> you just some people just don't like the form the the, no. the first one uh, he was coming to colorado and he wanted to know what the good ski areas were okay uh, which you know i i shared what i could with him uh and then he was completely checked out from and he there. didn't care Did, didn't care anything else about it and and didn't mention skiing the second time around but uh it was just clearly like okay the pr guy says i gotta be on the phone with this right. guy i'll i'll drill it out and uh yeah it was it was bad yeah, so like, you, 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 no matter how experienced you are you can't save every interview no it's kind of like uh marshawn lynch during the super bowl that one year yeah. <laughs> i'm just here so i won't get fined yeah answering yeah. every question that way and i found sometimes when you're talking to some people you know uh the movie almost famous you know mm-hmm. the journalist is viewed as the enemy mm-hmm. and if you're not sort of in the club they're very guarded with their info. Yeah. I, I interviewed this former Major League Baseball player, and he didn't want to give me a ton 
of peek behind the curtain. And that's what I'm looking for, yeah, right? Yeah. Because people want to know that. What's it like to be a big league pitcher? You know, who was your toughest hitter? That kind of thing. And he was a little bit guarded with me. It took me a long time to crack that open, and I never kicked the door open entirely. That's mm-hmm. tough, man. Well, with music, uh, a lot of times these guys are like, in a hotel room, and they're every fifteen minutes or every twenty minutes, oh, they yeah. got somebody else. It's like a press junket style, right? Exactly. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the key is to come up with those good questions that not everybody else is is asking. I, I remember uh, one time interviewing Ben Harper, and I, I don't even remember what the question was, but he was like. That is a really good question. That's the kind of questions that none of the people I've talked to so far today have said. And he then was really interesting and uh, went over the time and screwed over some subsequent (laughs) journalists probably just because he Uh, was, uh, you know, realized that there was somebody who was not just going to read off the press release. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge difference. And I found if someone tells me, that uh, you know, I ask good questions, or they really like the interview that we did. Man, I can fly high on that for like a month. Oh yeah, I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the Ben Harper example there is something I I remember for you know fifteen or twenty years. Sure. So yeah, it, w- those moments are the ones that you know keep you going through the Jay Mascus moments. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, when I interviewed Kyle Clark, we got done. And he said, you, you ask good questions. I go, Jesus, coming from Kyle Clark, what a compliment. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. I'm reminded of this, and this is, this is going to be an interesting segue into this uh, topic area that I want to cover. But I'm friends with Ed Sealover and Lynn Bartles mm-hmm. and some of the other journalists and, you know, ex-Rocky Mountain News people. Yeah. And the former editor there, I want to say it was Kevin Vaughn, was sharing some memories because we just recently had the 10-year anniversary of the Rocky Mountain News closing. Right. And he said that I think it was he and Ed Sealover sitting outside the building and you were interviewing them. Is that right? Were you? Uh, I, it certainly could have been. Okay. And so I guess my question is, having been at this now since 1990 mm-hmm. and in the same place, what is your assessment on the state of journalism right now? Well, this is it, things are changing so quickly. I mean, you know, before our conversation is over, things could change. <laughs> right. So uh, uh, speaking of stock lines, my stock line uh, about that is uh, every day that I come into the office and the light switch works is a good day. <laughs> you know, it could all be over at any moment right. just because of the economics of it. And so so things are constantly shifting. And uh, speaking of the Rocky Mountain News is. 10th anniversary of its closing, I just interviewed the editor, publisher, and president at the time of the closing, John Temple. Oh, sure. uh, And did a really long, in-depth interview with him on that subject where he got into areas that he'd never talked about before. When's that coming out? Uh, It came out uh, like a month ago or so. Oh, my mistake. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, it... it already feels like ancient history. It seems yeah. crazy that there was a time when Denver had two newspapers and that it was an important thing that every many people got both newspapers delivered to their home. Now it's rare for anybody under the age of 80 to get one newspaper delivered right. to their home. <laughs> and it's and it's probably because they haven't figured out how to use their phone yet. Right. Uh, so <laughs> so that's just one example of of how things have changed and 
I remember being told in the 1990s by a newspaper expert that it was possible print journalism would be dead by the turn of the century, that there mm. would be no more daily newspapers. Clearly, that was not true, right. but it, it's altered in, in such a profound way that you know, making a prediction is a fool's game. Oh, yeah. It's a total fool's errand. Yeah. In that time, you know, with the Rocky closing, I'm interested in your perception of Westward's place in the world. Because Westward is the alt-weekly and always mm -hmm. has been. But there's content coming out every day online. Yeah. And a ton of really important stuff. Stuff I don't always agree with. I mean, as we do this interview, I think just two days ago, I was arguing with Chase Woodruff on Twitter <laughs> about something. Um, but that's to say that there, there's still a void being filled. And Westward's perception is sort of the alt-weekly. You know, when I was younger, I looked to it for music and culture and, you know, especially like concert calendars and mm -hmm. music reviews and things like that. And I think of Jason Heller writing here and Bree Davies, both people I've had on this show. Yeah. Um, I clearly very much care about journalism. But I found Westward to be more of a source of actual news now than I perceived it to be in the past. Mm -hmm. Is that fair or unfair or real? Well, there's clearly more content than there used to be. And uh, one of the frustrating things during the pre-internet days is that uh, we only basically had one bullet in the gun per week. Sure, and yeah. It, it came out, and that was it. And we were desperately afraid that we were going to lose stories before they could end up in print right. from not just the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News, who came out daily, but from the TV stations. And there was more of a news radio kind of thing going on back then. Uh, we actually printed at the Denver Post's print place, oh, and no we kidding. kind of guarded the paper to make sure that there weren't Snoopy Post people who would read it on the press and steal it before we could print it. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so that was a <laughs> legit concern. That's like guerrilla warfare, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and that was the, the tenor of the time back then. There sure. was a, a genuine newspaper war, and... Uh, we weren't one of the combatants that they thought about. I mean, it was really the Post versus the Rocky, but we were in there swinging. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think our stuff started to go online in 94 or 95. And uh, in the late 90s, I was actually assigned full time to uh, do. Well, actually, it was the. I started doing more blogging kinds of things in the 2000s, and I guess it was 2008 or so that I was permanently assigned to focus entirely online wow. because we wanted to try to, to keep up with stuff. And that shifted in time, too. At, at a, Early on, it was just like throw up as many posts as possible. Right. They, they can be really short. They can basically just be an intro to a press release, but get as many things up as you possibly can. And it's evolved to, you know, write in-depth stories, you know, go into detail, do the stories that nobody else is going to do. And there's so much online competition now that Westward isn't the only one that, you know, can publish the F word and, sure. and whatever. So, you know, the whole old alt weekly model has shifted in a lot of ways, but we still bring an attitude that 
I don't think most publications do. Uh, and we try to take angles on things that w- one of the reasons we're, we're still we still appeal to a youthful audience is that we don't just uh, accept every status quo right. and steer clear of every sacred cow. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'd say that's accurate. And I mean, that kind of comes out of the alt weekly past. You know, that's, yeah. that's part of your ethos. That's it. That's exactly right. It, it, it's not like uh, it's something that's inauthentic. It, it's grown with us over time. And in some ways, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more people out there doing that right now. It's it's a tone maybe more akin to the uh, Twitter and and uh, Instagram worlds rather than journalism. But you know, it's it's important for us to uh, to not only have that voice and maintain that voice, but to make it a local voice. Right, and combining the local voice and sort of that that attitude and that ethos but not just be needlessly incendiary either yeah yeah i I don't think we're nothing but hot takes here right yeah it's not a take factory (laughs) yeah yeah um can you attribute some of that to i mean you you mentioned you've been here almost 29 years and patty calhoun has been in charge here for i i don't even know she's a co-founder of the paper and it was founded in i think 77 Jeez. so yeah she is uh you know she makes me look like the uh the newcomer the new kid on the block the rookie yeah yeah <laughs> so uh yeah she she established this paper it was you know going strong before i got here uh when i first arrived uh there were two stories that had been done prior to that that I basically had to set five minutes aside in any interview I was doing for the people I was talking to to say how much they hated those two stories, <laughs> both of which were entirely accurate. One of them was about then CU Buffalo's uh, football coach, Bill McCartney, and the uh, fathering of a child by the quarterback at the time, Saul Inessi, with his daughter oh, uh, outside God. of wedlock. So... Uh, and Saul and Essie, uh, had cancer and died tragically. And, uh, anyhow, so we wrote that story and blast yeah, from the past, man. Wow. Yeah. ESPN has done that story. Yeah. Now. But at the time people were up in arms and then we had another story. Both of these stories were done by a writer named Brian Abbas. I should give him credit, uh, about Roy Romer, the governor at the time he was, open secret having a relationship with an aide named i think her name was bj honeycutt wow yeah, like, a, like, a, like like a name that sounds like it's out of a dukes of hazard episode <laughs> but anyway uh you know we didn't have photos of them coming out of a motel six uh, and right. so th- it was uh the headline was the rumor about romer and it was about how the perception that this was happening was uh, having an impact on policy and the the way he was being dealt with. Well, he came out and denied everything, and he, uh, you know, we lost sponsorships. We lost sure. sponsorship to the film festival, and uh, we were just excoriated over this. This was about three months before I got here. Okay. Uh, cut to uh, about six or seven years later, uh, somebody did get photographs of them uh, macking uh, in a car, and he had to admit that it was true and that it had been true all along. Wow, vindicated uh, over the long <laughs> term, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you know, those are the kind of stories that nobody was going to do, that nobody did, that were true, that were yeah. accurate. And, uh, you know, so that's uh, sort of an approach that we try to take going forward. Uh, you know, there, there's nobody off limits. Uh, you know, if nobody else is doing the story, uh, but it's a real story and an important story, we should do it and not be afraid to do it. So does the heat ever bother you? Uh, I wouldn't say it's, it bothers me. There have been times when I've gotten death threats and that's ah. not really a lot of fun, No, <laughs> but, uh, but if somebody is just using invective against me, you know, fine, fire away. Yeah. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has the heat turned up in this current administration where, you know, Trump talks about journalists being the enemy of the American people. Do you ever do the trolls? Are they more emboldened now or is it? Similar tenor to what it's always been. Uh, social media has changed things. You know, people are, you know, really able to immediately access you and put you on blast. So uh, that just technologically has changed. I don't know that I would uh, attribute it, it to Trump or anything like that. I just think it's the way that the medium has developed. But uh and the anonymity of online uh, sure. has has really made that so easy to do. Get screamed at by Twitter eggs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've found when I get... I used to write about professional wrestling on the internet. Mm. And this was in the early 2000s when the product was really, really hot. I mean, you know, The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, a lot of eyes on the product. And so my stuff was pretty well read. I got some of the most hateful things I've ever read in my life writing about Monday Night Raw. Mm -hmm. And I thought, people are super passionate about this. I can't oh, yeah. imagine what it would be like if I were writing about actual issues. And so, I mean, my, my hat is off to you because you got to keep pushing. And you, it, no matter if people react poorly to whatever it is you're doing, the fact that you were doing important work and getting people talking, that matters. Yeah. Journalism matters. Well, some of the the most prominent death threats that I got were was when I was writing about music. In fact, the first one I well, the first kind of death threat. It was more like a death suggestion. Was it Dinosaur uh, Junior fans? <laughs> no, it was not Dinosaur <laughs> Junior fans. Uh, you know, I was at Northwestern and uh, I met with uh, Patty Calhoun, and uh, she asked me to do a tryout article. And uh, I had gotten her attention. She, her st uh, standard thing that she would with applicants is send me five story ideas. Mm. So I sent her 10 story ideas. And then when I didn't well hear from her, I sent her 50 story ideas. Oh, uh, so she picked out one of them, which was the rock stars whose careers had been most helped by their own deaths oh my yeah uh and it was uh, shortly after stevie ray vaughn died so it was a super tasteful timing <laughs> and so i wrote this article and uh then uh arrived in town because i was hired and uh it was on the cover oh my and then like two weeks later Actually, I guess the, the the cover story came out before I got here, and the one that was on the newsstands when I arrived in town to come to the office for the first time, we had at the time ads on the back page, and somebody had bought an ad on the back page advising me to kill myself. Ah, very nice. Uh, and uh, uh, so I just thought, you know, why am I even bothering to go to work here? I'm just going to get run right back out the door. Instead, I walked into Patty's office and she held up the ad, pointed to it and said, look, bringing revenue into the paper already. 
<laughs> so, so that was a death suggestion. The first death threat was about a Grateful Dead uh, concert review that I wrote. It's like, aren't these people supposed to be mellow and you know peaceful? Apparently not. Yeah, God, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, and and one of my uh, jazz writers, the late Linda Gruno. Uh, uh, she actually had a death threat based on uh, a piece she wrote about a smooth jazz band. That that was one band. of the most bizarre ones ever. We actually had to have a security guard sitting at our front desk for a week because of this death threat. Wow, over yeah. smooth jazz. Over smooth <laughs> jazz. I'm you know it's interrupting the growth of my fern here. The smooth jazz. So. <laughs> Oh God. Okay. That's uh well God, it's funny. People say, you know, people like to dismiss pop culture criticism or you know, people who write about pop culture, like this is all meaningless. Clearly it's not, because yeah. these are the things that really it, to quote uh John Cusack in High Fidelity, you know, books, records, movies, these things matter. Yeah. They they absolutely do. People they're important to people. They're touchstones in their lives. They mark their development based on what they were listening to or right. watching at a certain time. So, so that's all very real. Uh, you know, now that I'm mainly doing news kind of stuff, uh, you know, I, I certainly get my fair share of hammering here and there. Uh, but often it's, it's sort of frustrating uh, from a personal standpoint in that. Uh, if I'm quoting somebody saying something, they attribute it to me. It's like, no, I, you know, look, right. there are quote marks there. This is somebody who said this. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm printing what this person said. I, so. I have the forum here. Like, I, I have the <laughs> mic. I'm just handing it over. Yeah. This, this is them speaking into that microphone. That is a common disconnect with readers is yeah. equating what the article is about with it supposedly being my personal beliefs. Right. And that happens to me all the time on the other side because I've done PR now from, oh, God, almost 15 years. And, you know, I'll be dealing with people who don't like the coverage of something. Mm -hmm. And I say, it's not the writer. Like, just trust me, it's not the writer. They, they're going with what they have. And if we're not telling our story effectively – that's on you. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you, you need to do a good job of conveying this because they are then the translator conveying it to the public. And if, if we're not doing our job, the writer can't do their job. So no, that, that uh, makes sense and is not commonly perceived. You're right. about that, uh, And it's intensely frustrating for me because I, I deal with clients who, again, view journalists as, as the enemy. Mm -hmm. I say journalists are not your enemy. You, you just got to work with them because Especially now, so many people have so many beats. I talked to Ed Sealover again, who's covering like six different beats, and they're all different from each other. Yeah, It's hard to get up to speed. That's our job. We've mm. got to help tell the story. We've got to help fill in the picture. They're going to go to the other side. They'll fill in their side of the picture. Let's make sure we do ours the best that we can. Mm -hmm. So how many pitches in a day do you get, do you think? Oh, God. I... Uh... I am really bad at clearing out my emails. Okay. Uh, I tend to just open the ones that, uh, you know, are something that I need uh, in a timely way and ignore the rest. And I think, I think the last time I looked at my phone, my inbox had 41,000 emails oh, in it. Oh, man. You're giving me anxiety. Because <laughs> they say there are two kinds of people in the world, and it'll be like a screenshot of iPhone mail icon, mm -hmm. and one is 
cleaned and zero. The other one's like ten thousand plus. Yeah, and you just described that to me, and I yeah yeah it's it's terrifying. I'm the other one. The idea of opening up every single one of those emails, I'd have to add forty eight hours to every day to be able to do that. That's how many pitches we get. You could get through that roughly. I don't know, ten years after the Earth crashes into the sun. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, and, and, and we're talking about PR people here. Uh, there are so many fewer journalists and so many more PR people oh, yeah. per journalist that the the uh, inequity there is enormous. Yeah, <laughs> and you know they it, it sometimes feel like you're surrounded by PR people. Oh yeah, it's it's endless, and so many of them are terrible. Oh yeah, most of them suck. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, and not to not to pat myself on the back here, but you responded to mine. You have the record, by the way for quickness in response for a potential guest <laughs> because I, and I submitted it through the online form too. I didn't have your direct email, mm-hmm. um, but you got back to me right away and I thought, wow, okay, he is on it. So when you, he, when you tell me you have 41,000, you know, unread messages, I go, well, that's great. You know, how do you cut through the clutter? Write something that actually appeals to the journalist and yeah. speaks to their interest and tailor it. Don't send out like your shotgun blast. Mm-hmm. If you do that, no one's going to pick it up. Talk to them individually and, you know, sometimes pick up the phone for God's sakes. Oh, yeah. The, the phone is uh, uh, an instrument that is uh, underused at this point, to oh, say 100%. the least, or at least underused for vocal communication. Yeah. Uh, when, when I get uh, and I get dozens of these every day. Uh, from California marijuana companies. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's just they see you've written about marijuana in the past, so therefore you're going to write about California marijuana. Well, in fact, we're not going to write about California. We have a really big, important, burgeoning industry here in Colorado. We try to keep things uh, as local as we can. We'll branch outside the Denver area sometimes, but we want to give Denver readers something interesting to read about. And they don't give a crap about an excellent deal in Santa Monica. <laughs> right. Uh, if you want to buy some ad space, that's a different number. <laughs> uh, and see how that goes for you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't don't bother me as a journalist with that. Yeah. One thing I'm always curious about, and, and I always forget to ask this, so I'm happy that I remember. You as a journalist, who are the other journalists that you like to read? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh you know, I I really like to read a lot of our journalists here. One of the things that uh, t- today uh, you know, we have a cover story on Columbine by Alan Prendergast, mm-hmm. and uh, he is just a gifted writer who is yeah. really good at reporting, and uh, and it's a pleasure to to read his stuff on a regular basis. So uh that may speak to my sort of local bias here uh a lot of the national things i look at tend to be you know i'll gravitate to them based on the brand name like well the new york times uh, you know that's sure. but but uh in terms of local journalists i'm much more likely to uh to key to somebody in the denver area uh yeah. and and see what's happening here that, that's another key to westward's longevity is caring about the community and not just caring about uh you know whatever we can get clicks on today not to go too james lipton on you here <laughs> but if you were not doing this job is there another job you could picture yourself doing uh well I love music and so uh you know see you know 
radio is another dying industry here. So I love uh, radio, but, which is uh, why I do this. Yeah, I, when I was in college, uh, I, my I mentioned that I went to Northwestern, but I had to go to two colleges before that. The first college I went to was uh, is now called Colorado Mesa University, which oh, sure, then yeah. called Mesa State and Grand Junction, which is my hometown. And uh, they have a radio station there called KMSA. And uh, I was on that radio station for three or four years, and it was terrific. It was just so much fun. And it totally spoiled me for commercial radio because, you know, one one of our rules was you can't play anything on the current top 40. Yeah. Uh, So. uh, God, no wonder I'm drawn to you. I'm a KCSU guy. Oh, there you go. So I I did that for five years. I, I did bachelor's and master's there. And I had my show Friday nights. It was the punk rock show. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I I was very antagonistic towards commercial radio for a long time. I've come around on it now because, again, it's a much different lay of the land. But yeah. God, well, it's I'm just with a different thing. But yeah, yeah it, it was so much fun. I, I, uh, I had a number of positions there, including music director and nice. – and, uh, also did the station promotions and and things like that. My last show on the air, I did 24 hours straight. Wow. And among the things that uh, we did were uh, the uh, shortest song set. So we'd like found, uh, you know, songs that were 10 or 12 seconds long and tried to switch from turntable to turntable with the mic open. It was a disaster. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, yeah, those are the kind of things you can't do at a commercial station. So if there was a job to, you know, where you could make a living doing that stuff, that would be what I would do uh, if I couldn't do this. I gotcha. And and when I, uh, when I actually came to Westward, my, uh, I went to, uh, UCLA after Mesa college and got a master's degree in screenwriting and lived in Los Angeles for five years. Nice. And I thought that background would make me a perfect movie critic. And so I thought there could be a job as a movie critic. Uh, I arrive at Westward where we actually had a movie critic, a guy named Bill Gallo, who had written for both the post and the news. Uh, uh, he, he passed away recently, uh, uh, kind of a surly guy at times, but a really beautiful, gifted writer. So I wasn't going to displace sure. Bill Gallo. And then by the time Bill Gallo was gone, the entire industry had changed and you couldn't afford to have a movie critic. Yeah. So that that was the kind of thing that I thought that I was going to do when I got here. And, and I get to be a movie critic about 11 days a year now because I cover the Denver Film Festival. For oh, us. cool. And yeah. So that's that's pure pleasure for me. I love the Denver Film Fest, too. I cover that on this show. I, mm-hmm. I do a number of interviews from there, and that is so fun. I mean, just the way that they structure that and put that together, and their media team is exceptional there, too. Do you deal with Neil? Uh, yeah, I deal with Neil, and uh, I, each year I have a Brit uh, the artistic director, uh, make picks like must see picks for each day. Uh, so that's a lot of fun too. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, that, that's another, there are plenty of jobs in today's economy where you can make no money. That's one of those jobs (laughs) where I I could write about film and not make a dime. So I'm, I'm glad I actually have a paycheck here. I've, I've always wanted, I always perversely wanted at my corporate job to get called in to like HR or wherever to talk about my internet habits mm-hmm. and because I was never shopping. It was rarely social media. It was never porn, 
but they'd be I wanted them to say like you're reading a lot of film criticism during the day <laughs> <laughs> because I love reading just essays you know I love reading film criticism mm-hmm. I it's one of my favorite things to read when during the downturn I was at my PR firm and our billables were way way low I devoured almost Roger Ebert's entire back catalog. Mm-hmm. Any movie that I had seen, I wanted to know what his take was on it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're, we're very simpatico in that way. So, okay, I want to be sensitive to your time. So, uh, because I'm sure you've got thousands and thousands of words to churn <laughs> out again today. Uh, as you do, it seems like, every day. Um, so, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Mike Roberts, where can people find you? Where can they see your work? Anything you want to plug, do it now. Uh, westward.com forward slash news is our, uh, our main site here. Uh, we also have other verticals. They don't like calling them blogs anymore. They're okay. verticals. Ah. And, uh, uh, so we have a vertical for art. We have a vertical for music. We have a vertical for food. Uh, we have a vertical for marijuana. Sometimes my stuff can, uh, show up on, on others of those areas. Uh, I was, in the music situ- uh, section just the other day after the passing of uh, surf guitarist Dick, Dick Dale, Dale. Uh, I did an amazing interview with him in 1994, which we republished. And and this is one of those interviews that totally contradicts what we were talking about earlier about preparation and everything. Mm-hmm. So this is the way my Dick Dale interview went. Hello. He goes for 60 minutes straight. <laughs> Goodbye. And then it's over. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like a 60 minute monologue by a guy who's known for instrumental music so he, <laughs> his voice was not on records for the most part uh and yet uh so so anyhow uh there was a music section piece that i i was on the other day that's very similar to when i interviewed andrew wk i'll bet <laughs> that guy has plenty to say and we covered everything from we were talking about peanuts to ant farms to pinball machines i didn't ask him about any of these topics mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, this was my favorite moment in any interview I've ever done. He goes, what's that mountain down there? Like that big one. <laughs> and I go, uh, oh yeah, we only have one in Colorado. I'm like, are you talking about Mount Elbert? Like the tallest one? He goes, no, no. It's like old Porgy's frosted cap. And I go, what? <laughs> and I'm like, do you mean Pike's Peak? He goes, yes, Pike's Peak. Yeah. And I thought he called it old Porgy's frosted cap. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was seriously 45 minutes. I think I asked him three questions. Yeah. Same kind of deal. All right. Well, Mike, I think you're doing exceptional work. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for being uh, a voice here in Denver for as long as you have. And I really appreciate the time and I wish you continued success. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Good luck. And that wraps up episode 211 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Michael Roberts for taking some time out of his day to sit down with me and let me turn the mic around on him. He does great interviews. I urge you to check him out. The links to his work will be on the companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. You can listen to this episode and every episode at the homepage. We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, a billion other podcatchers that I can't keep up with anymore, nor do I care to. But if you have one and you find John of All Trades on it, give us a rating, give us a review, hit that subscribe button. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. 
help your organization tell its story in a brand new way through training, content, engagement, and podcasting. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They've been with me for all these five years, and I hope they continue to stay with me because their work is exceptional. Campaigns, content development, website building, online advertising, social media marketing. And if you are trying to reach people online, there's no better firm to engage with. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Keep up with John of All Trades on social media. J-O-A-T pod is the handle. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. The first job series is available on LinkedIn and Facebook only. That's on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. I'm back here very soon with a brand new episode. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. Thanks for five years. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.